0: Hey, welcome back to the Burnett Breakdown, where I, Hunter Burnett, keep up with the news so that you don't have to. Today, we're going to be talking about Justice Breyer, the Supreme Court, and Ukraine and Russia. The biggest news of the week came on Wednesday when reports came out that Justice Stephen Breyer, the Supreme Court, was intending to retire at the end of this coming-up term and uh, on Thursday, Stephen Breyer officially announced that he would indeed be retiring from the Supreme Court. Now, this created a lot of stir because uh, there's only nine Supreme Court justices, so whenever there's a vacancy, that there's always going to be a lot of discussion about who is going to replace them. Now, in terms of Supreme Court uh, vacancies, especially in the last couple of years, this one really, in my opinion, is not going to be very uh, consequential. Uh, Justice Breyer was a relatively liberal or progressive uh, justice and will be replaced by a relatively progressive liberal justice by uh, Joe Biden. Now, that is assuming that the uh, Senate will be able to, all the Democratic senators will be able to stick together, uh, which they have struggled to with passing legislation. But I don't think that will be an issue in terms of getting through uh, the justice to replace uh, Stephen Breyer. Um, Some uh, of the initial names that came out about a potential nominees that would replace Justice Breyer is Ketanji Brown Jackson, uh, a judge on the Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. She is 51 years old. Another name is, that has been floated around is Justice Leandra Kruger. She is 45 years old and is a justice on the California Supreme Court. Now, uh, in uh, there, uh, Joe Biden and his administration has reiterated a couple of times now that uh, they are committed to putting the first uh, black woman on the Supreme Court. Um, I have, I'm not against uh, putting a black woman on the Supreme Court, but I do think that it is a shame that uh, Joe Biden uh, will qualify it with that. And 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 the main reason that I hate that so much is because. Whether they are qualified or not, there will always be a a, a, the ability for people to doubt whether they were chosen because they were qualified, especially people who aren't as well-informed. So Katanji Brown-Jackson seems to be the absolute front-runner right now, and I'd be shocked if she wasn't it. And she's a judge on the Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. Now, the Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit is largely seen as kind of the training ground for Supreme Court justices. She, she's clearly uh, qualified. She went to Harvard Law. She's been a judge for a while now. She's clearly qualified. And so it's frustrating to me that uh, Joe Biden would come out and... You and and say that that is what he is looking for someone who meets that criteria because now uh, people will doubt whether she is qualified when uh, she seems to be in all manner uh, very qualified and so I hate that we have to qualify it like that and uh, and as such can lead to uh, a, at least some doubt uh, which is um, just a, a shame and I hate using that kind of uh, race. Uh, based qualifications for any position, uh, but especially when the candidate or the you know, nominee would be imminently uh, qualified either way. In a similar vein, uh, the Supreme Court took an, uh, affirmative cash, an affirmative action case on Tuesday. Um, So the Supreme Court uh, decided that they would decide whether to prohibit the use of race-conscious admissions in higher education. So the lawsuit alleged that Harvard and the University of North Carolina used quota-like racial balancing tactics that artificially raised the standards of admission for Asian American applicants so uh there is there were two separate cases filed one against harvard and one against unc and they have now been combined uh and are going to be presenting in front of the supreme court uh the alleged the allegations here are that uh, asians were admitted at a lower rate than whites even though their overall academic scores were better um Now, so this is uh, going to be uh, a really important, a really interesting case to watch. Uh, It will be, uh, we'll see when it, it could theoretically be pushed to next term and not done this term. Uh, If it is done this term, then we will likely get a decision in June. But this could really have a huge impact on higher ed. So what happens now is uh, colleges are allowed to take into the account Take into account the race of applicants. Now, the reason why is is theoretically because they are it it helps them develop and admit a diverse set of students. And so, in order to uh, kind of have this diverse student body, uh, they are allowed to take race into account as long as, and this is important, as long as it is part of a. Uh, a, uh, not, it is not strictly based on race, but rather is uh, only one of many factors. So they have to have a multi factor way of evaluating candidates, uh, and race cannot be the only one. And Harvard has said that it only considered race in this flexible way. So as one factor among many in building diverse classes of students. What's interesting too is the, um, Uh, Harvard and and a lot of uh, schools across the country. It's not just Harvard. They will in this multi-factor approach. uh, They do stuff like interviews and then personality scores. And so one uh, kind of reason why Asians uh, were they had to score so much higher to get in is because they got such low scores on these kind of uh, interview um, personality uh, evaluations. And so. They were scoring very low in these categories, which is remarkable that this is even allowed. That you can, uh, if if any other race were, except for maybe white, but if they were consistently marked down for a specific quality, particularly personality quality there would be outrage. And yet, that's what we see in the findings uh, that were submitted before the court, that they were consistently marked lower on their uh, personality, uh, the personality part of the admissions. And so, uh, this is going to really have a, just a really big impact on higher ed. Um, We're going to see whether, um, I mean, ideally, uh, we can... Uh, hopefully get rid of affirmative action. I hate affirmative action. It goes back to what I was saying earlier about um, uh, Ketanji Jackson. I, I I hate the even appearance of, of uh, possible um, unqualifications. And Clarence Thomas talks a lot about this in his book. Uh, and just in, in, uh, in he's talked about this in interviews where, you know, he felt like affirmative action actually went against him because uh, he got into Yale and he went to Yale law school. But once he got out, he actually felt like he couldn't find a job. And a large reason was because they assumed that he got in because he was uh, black. And so he got in on affirmative action. He wasn't actually qualified now that he uh, would. It's silly to think he wasn't qualified, um, but they had no way of necessarily knowing that. And so he felt like it hurt him. And I can see I can see that being a reality. I can see that there is doubt uh, when you specify these kind of race based qualifications and then uh, you can't uh necessarily be surprised when other people will then cast doubt on whether someone is actually qualified when uh, you have allowed that to be a possibility. So if we get rid of affirmative action, we can get rid of any doubt whatsoever and just assume that anybody is qualified because there's no way that they could have gotten in because of their race. And so I am really, uh, I'm really hoping that the Supreme Court will take this up. and And I think this has no chance of being, I don't think Harvard or UNC have any chance of winning this case. Uh, the, even John Roberts has uh, is, is famously said that the only w- way to get rid of ba- race-based discrimination is to stop discriminating, discriminating based on race. Uh, and so just with that statement alone, it seems to be that he's going to probably rule uh, in favor of these Asian American students or applicants uh, and not Harvard and UNC. But we uh, will see uh, as we go. Now on to some quick hits. On Tuesday, judges in Fulton County, Georgia, granted a special grand jury to investigate efforts to overturn Georgia's 2020 election results. Fulton County D.A. asked for the grand jury, saying she needed one to issue subpoenas to compel witnesses to testify and provide evidence. So this is a special purpose grand jury, and it can start on May 2nd and continue up to a year. So this grand jury will not have the authority to return an indictment, but can subpoena witnesses demand documents and make recommendations regarding criminal prosecution. Um, so uh, this is going to investigate whether there were any potential, quote, potential violations of Georgia law prohibiting solicitation of election fraud, the making of false statements to state and local bodies, conspiracy, racketeering, violation of oath of office and any involvement in violence or threats related to the elections administration. So this will largely be focused on the Trump uh, campaign and uh, be investigated whether they uh, broke the law in Trump. Trying to particularly uh, get Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State, to possibly find votes in order to overturn the election. Uh, this uh, grand jury is going to determine is going to be able to call witnesses and compel uh, testimony to uh, see whether uh, any laws were broken. Um, I- I'm interested to see what happens here. If a law was broken in the state of Georgia, it doesn't matter if it was Donald Trump or not. Then I- I- he should. Uh, he should get uh, convicted, and I'll be watching with interest to see what happens. Uh, I've you know, i I've, I've had a guess. I wouldn't be surprised if uh, nothing comes of this, but I wouldn't be surprised if something does. I think it is all going to de- uh, be determined based on the facts and whether uh, they, uh, the facts can be used to justify a breaking of the law um, or not. So uh, we'll, I'll keep everyone updated. Uh, I'm interested in it, but uh, we'll see as we go with that as well. On Thursday, the Fed released their meeting notes, and uh, Fed Chair Jerome Powell spoke. And uh, they are expected to raise rates in March. Uh, and going to the expectation is that there will be through at least three rate hikes this year. Now, this is a kind of a shift in towards a more hawkish policy uh, or stance uh, for the Fed. They are be- going to begin to tighten the monetary supply. Uh, get rid of some assets on their balance sheet. Uh, I don't necessarily know how it all works, um, but they are doing all of this to address inflation. Uh, So though I don't necessarily know all about monetary policy, I I stand by what I said a couple weeks ago uh, in terms of inflation, that I do not think the government is going to be able to do a whole lot about inflation until they uh, can get the supply chains figured out, and the government can't really do much about that. So supply chains need to get figured out, and then uh, the labor market, the labor shortage needs to end, and people need to be able to find uh, workers. And so until those two things are so- are solved, uh, we will have inflation. And the the Fed can do something about it. I guess they can you know limit demand a little bit by decreasing or tightening the monetary supply and not being so loose with their money, or with the money. But I still have my doubts that this is going to do much. Uh, especially because uh, of those factors I've already talked about. In international news, again, we are talking about Russia and Ukraine. Uh, so as a recap, uh, Russia has accumulated more than 100,000 Russian troops on uh, its border with Ukraine and uh, large uh, or large swaths of the intelligence in the United States and in NATO believe that they are planning for an invasion. That This is not just a buildup uh, to kind of intimidate, but actually a plan to invade. And so NATO uh, has been negotiating with Russia, as has the United States, uh, separately and together. And now they are kind of preparing uh, in and starting their own buildup process. And so the Pentagon ordered up to 8,500 U.S. troops on standby for deployment to Eastern Europe in case anything happens. Now, these U.S. troops won't be authorized to enter Ukraine, but they will be deployed to NATO, Eastern NATO countries, uh, and to kind of serve as a defense there. Uh, also, Australia, Germany, and the U.K. Uh, pulled d- diplomatic personnel And their families from embassies in the capital of Ukraine. Uh, The United States has also done this now uh, where they have also told uh, anybody working in the diplomatic uh, personnel office uh, to uh, evacuate or to leave uh, Ukraine because of the threat of Russian invasion. Also, other countries in NATO are beginning to uh, uh, dispatch uh, different defenses and mobilize their defenses a little bit more. Denmark is dispatching a frigate to the Baltic Sea and would send four F-16 jet fighters to Lithuania. Spain is sending ships to join NATO forces in the Black and Mediterranean Sea and is considering sending jet fighters to Bulgaria. The Netherlands is deploying two F-35 jet fighters to Bulgaria, and UK has particularly stepped up to try and prevent Russia from invading Ukraine by uh, sending a ton of weapons to Ukraine. Uh, They flew a plane uh, to Ukraine full of different arms. Now, In missing in all of this, and this has been a point of, we'll say, contention between uh, or it's been in the news as and discussed as a point of contention between NATO, Germany, Germany has largely not done a whole lot. Um, They have, uh, like I mentioned earlier, they've pulled their diplomatic personnel or families from embassies in Ukraine, but they have not started to really mobilize. They have not uh, seemed to be interested in uh, sending arms to Ukraine at all. and that, In fact, they haven't sent arms to Ukraine. And uh, the flight that brought arms from the U.K. to Ukraine uh, was uh, meant to fly over Germany. That would be the most direct route. And, but it avoided Germany and uh, has, it went around Germany to take those arms to Ukraine. And there's speculation that that is because Germany did not want those arms to fly through their own airspace. Now, the German chancellor is claiming that this is because they are, have a policy of being neutral in a foreign crisis like this, uh, but I, uh, I find it odd that Germany is doing this. In particular, with the context of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline that has been in the news recently, uh, this is a pipeline that is connects Russia and Germany. Uh, it's a natural gas pipeline, uh, and it does not go through Ukraine, so right now, uh, a large A chunk of, I think, all of maybe um, Russia's natural gas, uh, if it's sent to Europe, it goes through Ukraine. And so the people of Ukraine and the country of Ukraine benefit from that. The Nord Stream 2 pipeline would allow Russia to now uh, get natural natural gas, transport natural gas to Europe— Uh, without going through Ukraine, so it cuts off Ukraine and the need uh, to go through Ukraine. And so Germany, this has been a point of contention between Germany and the United States. Uh, There's been a lot of uh, disagreement that Germany is doing this. Uh, And uh, this is in uh, the greater context of a heavy, heavy reliance that Europe has on Russian uh, natural gas. Uh, I believe I saw a number that was 40% of the natural gas used in Europe comes from Russia. And so Russia has immense leverage over Europe in that regard, especially because there's already kind of a looming energy crisis that uh, Europe could face. And so uh, this uh, has a, they have a ton of leverage and uh, Nord Stream 2 is just a greater part of that. Now, on Thursday, uh, reports had that Russia sent medical units to the front uh, that, according to Western uh, defense officials, moves them to a level of readiness that it hadn't reached in past buildups. In other words, we are pretty much in the same place that we have been with Russia and Ukraine for a couple of weeks now. Uh, The world is just sitting and waiting for uh, Vladimir Putin and to see what he does. Uh, This very well could just be... Uh, trying to stir things up, trying to see what he can get away with, and then not ultimately invading, or he very well could attempt to evade I- invade. So the, the world is sitting, watching, wondering how bold vladimir putin is going to get how badly he wants to take ukraine because if he takes ukraine especially with all the arms that has been shipped to ukraine recently the the ukraine military is not going to be able to stand up to russia and so they're almost certainly going to lose in a ground invasion of russia however they are heavily armed and they're heavily motivated to continue to fight and so the kind of i don't want to say the hope because it's not uh the hope is that nothing happens at all. But if Russia were to invade, the thinking is that Ukraine uh, and the people in Ukraine are going, theoretically, could make it so hard for Russia to maintain Ukraine, to hold on to Ukraine, that the situation uh, could eventually resolve itself. Because Russia, while they will, they could invade and easily win, uh, don't see the cost... Uh, of staying there and trying to maintain a, a hold on power there as worth it because it will be incredibly bloody, bloody incredibly costly, expensive, and, and it may not be worth it to uh, Putin. And so the rest of the world is just sitting, watching. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what these Western countries do, what the United States does, um, and Uh, with a president like uh, Joe Biden, I can't imagine they're going to do, uh, the United States will do a whole lot in terms of of military support. Um, But uh, you never know. Uh, We will see. But uh, it's interesting nonetheless. Now on to the breakdown of the breakdown, where I talk about my uh, newsletter, the Burnett Breakdown. If you uh, have not subscribed to that, or you uh, don't know what I'm talking about, then if you go to hunterburnett.substack.com, uh, you'll see there. It's called the Burnett Breakdown, and it's just a uh, newsletter that I write every once a week. It publishes on Friday uh, evening usually, um, and uh, the most recent one is entitled "Reading Old Together." Um, Little play on words there, but the main idea of this newsletter was really driven by a something that a, a teacher of mine in high school encouraged us uh, as, uh, as seniors at the time, and he encouraged us to read outside of our generation. Uh, he was a profound reader; he read all of the time, and uh, I remember this uh, advice sticking out, and I and I remember liking this advice. Um, but I think as I get older, this advice has come. Uh, more and more, has become more and more true, and I have come to understand it, uh, the, the wisdom in it, a lot more. So I didn't get to talk about it much in the uh, newsletter itself, but uh, when I talk about these old works, I'm primarily talking about the Western canon, uh, the great works of Western Civ, uh, but not only that. I, I, I'm open to uh, the um, study of other th- uh, older works, um, but particularly the Western canon, and so if we think about the Western canon, what we're thinking about is some of some of the uh, the works of in the Western canon are I mean literally thousands of years old, um, and so uh, works like Homer, the Iliad and the o- and Odyssey, are over uh, twenty five hundred years old, is, is some estimates, and so these are ancient works, and very often it can uh, we're told that. And, and I said this in the in the piece, but we're told that to, to read these is kind of a waste of time because they're just a bunch of dead white guys. And that is often used as a critique uh, in like a more of a social justice, race, uh, racial kind of way uh, to identify the world as uh, identifying the racism or structural racism that exists. And uh, these works are part of that system. And... Uh, I don't really care for that argument. I, I think if you had told Homer that in the, um, you know, 1000 BC that he was a, a white guy, he would have no idea what you were talking about because he was Greek and probably not white. And so uh, I hate that argument. But I don't really care necessarily about the racial part of that argument as much as the idea that because they're dead, you shouldn't read them. And I just think that's an absolutely foolish idea. It's an idea that I face a lot as a teacher uh, my, with my students wanting, uh, not wanting to read something simply because the language is weird or uh, you know it was it's five hundred years old, um, and so this idea of not reading things that are old is I think the epitome of foolishness, uh, and I talk about some examples or some reasons why I think that um, because the great works uh, the first reason I I cite is they filter okay it, they filter over the course of uh, years and like I said with Homer th- uh, sometimes thousands of years. And they stand the test of time. Now, what that means is that uh, people got enough value out of them to not only uh, finish it, but then to promote it and encourage others to read it. Particularly uh, their posterity, they encourage to read them. Okay, that's the only way that something lasts thousands of years is if it if people after the author read it and find it value enough, valuable enough to uh, read. To continue reading and to encourage others to read and so what it does is when we look at things that are old and we read things that are old it is a natural filtering process because Older things, over time, refine into the best of what was there is left. Uh, I use the example of music, where there's uh, you know decades of music, like the you know the '60s, and the '60s uh, are seen as you know a time of great music, but that's largely because most of what was bad in the '60s we have forgotten about because over time we don't listen to it, we don't pass it on, and so the only music we really listen to in the '60s is the best music of the time, and that'll be true of the you know, 2020s in decades, they'll look back, people will look back at the 2020s and will only experience the best of the 2020s. They will not actually get to experience all of the 2020s. And so we have, you know, thousands of years and hundreds of years sometimes of, uh, seeing this filtering process work itself out. And so rather than, uh, you having limited time and needing to, uh, figure out what to read and what is worth your time reading, uh, Our generation, many generations before us have already gone through this process. And so as we read what is old, uh, we're kind of participating in that filtering process and uh, that since that filtering process has taken place we don't have to waste time trying to figure out what to read if we read old uh, stuff. Uh, The other, another reason why we should read old works is because I I mentioned, I call it, I I titled the section Building Language. I didn't really know a great way to put that. Um, But this i this is a a really um, I thought this was I, I wrote the most about this because I think this is the most interesting part of this. But um, one part of reading old works is that you build your vocabulary. You you uh, I, as I have read older and older works, I have picked up on words that I didn't even know existed, and on words used in a way that I didn't know they could be used because I didn't know the full meaning of the word. And so, as you read old works, because they wrote so differently, you become uh, more knowledgeable in words. Your vocabulary grows. And this isn't just a, uh, a pedantic point, a point to sound uh, smart and intelligent, but rather, um, you can, you because we use words to think, we use words to uh, interpret the world, to understand the world, to communicate to others. Uh, language is pretty much everything. It gives us, in a sense, knowledge. It gives us understanding. Without language, it would be very difficult to understand anything. And so and so, if you've ever thought about uh, the, those times where you're telling uh, someone how you feel or you're telling someone, uh, you're, you're just communicating something to someone and you can't think of the right word, um, you 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 have this idea in your head, but you can't quite put it you know, the way that you want. And I say this all the time with students. I'll ask a question, and they will try to answer it, and then they'll kind of hesitate, and they'll stop, and they'll say, you know, I, I don't really know how to say it. And, and there's a level of, because you don't know how to say it, you don't really understand it either. Um, and largely, my role as a teacher, and the role of a lot of teachers, is to put words to things that people already know. Uh, so, I, I don't think that I have that much kind of new and novel information to tell my students, but rather they have these like gut-level inclinations, and kind of over time they develop these ideas that they think are true, and uh, very often I will put words to that, and they will kind of, you know, nod along and... uh, in, in a sense, understand themselves and what they were thinking better. And that's what language does for us. And so as we grow our vocabulary, that opens up a whole new world, a whole new world of being able to accurately with the most precision possible, uh, interpret and describe and understand the world around us. And so, uh, w- as we read old works, we are building that vocabulary. But it's not just that individual vocabulary. Like I tell, like I say in the piece, it's the collective vocabulary. It is the collective language. Uh, it, we uh, have references. We use stories. We use allusions to uh, these works of the old uh, uh, of the Western canon. So, f- for example, the two phrases I mentioned in the newsletter, uh, "down the rabbit hole," that's a, a quote, a quotation or a phrase from Alice in Wonderland, or "a pot calling the kettle black," that is from Don uh, Kyoto, Quixote, Quixote, um, another uh, classic. And, and so, those phrases, uh, yeah, you can understand them without uh, having read the book. And, and most of us have probably neither, I've n- pr- probably not read either of those, uh, or maybe uh, not one of them, but. Uh, when we read it in its context, those phrases will become more meaningful. But it's not just that. Um, there's phrases and idioms and, uh, and stories that are told and allusions that refer back to our common uh, books, our common uh, works of the past. Uh, and another one is catch twenty-two. That's again, that's a reference to a book, and so it provides you. And if you've read the book, it provides you with some more context of what that phrase means. And so, as we, uh, if we were to all read a, you know, ten books, and, and just we all have those ten great works, we have all read them. Then that gives us a common, th- some, a common knowledge, a common uh, curriculum, a, a common a language to work with. And so we will build a culture out of that. Okay, our culture will develop using those things as a means to um, get along, as a way of uh, interacting. Um, And so uh, when we, it when we encourage the Western canon and reading old, uh, our culture becomes unified. It becomes. and that's not a bad thing. Uh, it's, in fact a good thing uh, if we have a common culture because it unites us. And then finally, common ideas. Okay, every argument almost that we I hear today, I have read somewhere in the thinkers of the past. Uh, I say this in the piece, but Alexandria uh, ocasio Cortez, AOC, and Jean-Jacques Rousseau. There's hardly anything that distinguishes them. Uh, they are basically the same. Uh, Thomas More and Utopia, and Plato and his Republic, and like all of these works, all talk about a utopia. Uh, that we can achieve one day. And if that's not the definition of progressivism, I'm not sure what is. And so all of these arguments that we still have today have been had already in the past. And because of that filtering and refining refining process, the works that we have in the past that discuss these things are significantly better than what we could think of today. And so when we don't read the past, but yet we still want to have to argue about these things, because some of these things matter a lot, like how to uh, uh, structure society, how to structure our economy, how to live life a virtuous and a good fulfilling life those things matter and so when we uh, think when we don't read the past we think we are the first ones to face these problems and the first ones to come up with these solutions and so it's very arrogant and we end up just reinventing the wheel over and over and over again and uh, through that process we will fail over and over and over again because we are relying on a limited amount of knowledge when we have this access we have access to these thousands of years of uh, knowledge And with that, that is the end of the podcast for this week. Uh, I hope hope that you will share this and uh, come back next week so that we can continue to break down the news.